the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. is a public service announcement. Election day is near. Go to the polls and vote. Vote for the Kennedy of your choice, but vote. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour. A little uh, reminder there that uh, I, I I went ahead and stuck that, that funny PSA in from uh, Vaughn Meter and, and uh, the first family album from back in the 60s. And <clears throat> that was sort of in response to an email I got from one of the write-in candidates for Flint City Council about... Uh, reminding people to get out and vote tomorrow so i'll probably do that again before the show's over but uh, this hour we're going to shift gears we're going to talk a little bit about um, how a new book called the deceptive brain blame punishment and the illusion of choice with uh, psychiatrist and uh, educator and author 
Robert L. Taylor, MD, who joins me by phone. Robert, welcome to the show. Um, good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Um, when I read the title of this book, The Deceptive Brain, Blame, Punishment, and the Illusion of Choice, of course, the first question jumps right out at me. What do you mean, the illusion of choice? We get into the issue fairly quickly of free will. The, the book takes on our basic approach to criminal justice um, from an entirely different perspective, not from philosophical or religious thoughts, but from emerging evidence from the neurobehavioral sciences and genetics that essentially raises questions about the fundamental assumption of criminal justice, and that is that we each, through the agency of free will, choose our way through life, and therefore are fully blameworthy and justified being punished. And the evidence, and this is not just evidence coming from a, a, an older psychiatrist here, there are a number of neuroscientists and philosophers now that are beginning to take the evidence that's emerging and are saying that free will, as we experience it on a daily basis, is an illusion. Well, I, I generally think of myself as, you know, getting up in the morning and, and uh, facing a number of choices about what to have to, for breakfast or whether or not to be to work on time and, and you know, the normal everyday things. And so it, it seems perfectly reasonable to me that we would consider someone who behaves egregiously toward another human being as having made a choice to do that and and being deserving of, of blame and punishment. Let me give you a little bit of context. Yeah, um, please. Because this is fascinating, is, Robert. I'm not trying to refute what you're saying. I'm just saying a lot of people, you know, believe that... Uh, we're responsible for our own actions, and, and so I'm fascinated by this. I'm absolutely uh, understanding of people's first response to the idea that free will may be an illusion as totally preposterous. But hang in there for a moment. The context is this. The brain is one of the most complicated instruments that we know in the universe. It processes billions of bits of information every second. It is taking in information from an outside world, translating it through our sensory organs such as vision and hearing, analyzing it, pushing it forward in the brain, reanalyzing it, and it's doing that at billions of bits of information per second. If that were being dumped into our consciousness, you can imagine life would be totally chaotic. What has emerged over millions of years is a translation from the brain into a metaphorical narrative that we experience as a story, each one of us being the chief protagonist in that story. The amazing thing from the evidence that I've referred to in the book 
is that that story comes to us after the fact. It has already been decided, these choices that we think we're making. We get up, I'm going to have coffee or not, I'm going to put sugar or cream in it, I'm going to dress this way or what. All of that is after the fact, delivered to us in an entirely different form, a subjective reality, which is the nature of human experience. It's the only thing we know. It is our view of the world. We have no evidence. We have no direct contact with the real world out there. We don't even have direct contact with what's going on in the brain. We have contact and we live a story. We are characters in a story after the fact. Does that mean that that human knowledge is um, primarily experiential, and is it a collection of facts or a collection of perceptions? It's both, but what, what the basic implication of this is, your view of free will and my view of free will is that it, it goes beyond cause and effect that no matter what the environmental or the genetic influences on us, that when we exert free will, we're overriding that. But if you take a, a couple of steps back from that, it's a pretty crazy story, isn't it? It's like having thought that there's a little genie up in our head that's pulling the gears and turning the wheels and everything adds up to A, but we're able to constantly choose B, C, or D. Nothing in the rest of the universe works that way. And what I'm saying in the book, and it's based on evidence, is we don't work that way either, even though we feel that we're doing it. The choices that we make in our everyday life that we experience have already been determined, made in the brain in a totally deterministic way. There's nothing spontaneous about this. What causes us to do what we do is an incredible interplay between genes and experience, period, full stop. There's no room in that for what we experience as free will, which seems to be an illusion. At some point, maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the evidence that I'm basing that on. Yeah, I do want to talk about that, but I but I want to get to understand this a little better because we we all have seen these these uh, cartoons with the the little angel on on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder, yeah. as if the whole world is made up of either or choices. But there are more choices than that. Um, are, are these choices that are just available, or are they choices that we create? We make choices all the time. We just don't understand. We don't make them at the level that we experience it as. The brain is making choices by the millions all the time. And they're totally determined choices. They're the product of an interaction between genes and experience and situations. Totally determined. There's nothing free or spontaneous or willful about them. That reality, material reality, is being translated to us in story form. The life we live is an echo 
It's a story echo. It's not what's going on in the brain. It is basically derived from that in story form. It's the only thing we know. And in that story, it seems to us, partly because we don't know all the causes, it seems to us like we're going along choosing and willing every day of our life, when in fact that seems to be a complete illusion. I hear people talk a lot, um, usually when talking about parenting, about uh, kind of a debate over nature versus nurture. Are, are you suggesting that it's probably both? It is both. I, I think the old uh, uh, arguments about, oh, it's all genetic or it's all environmental experiential have pretty much gotten behind us. Most of the studies that are done show that, that most things are a combination of those things. You know, there have been a number of twin studies done over the years where twins are separated at birth. And so when they grow up, we can consider a lot of the differences to be basically determined by genetics. And in almost all those studies, we have a preponderance of genetic influence, but at the same time, we have a great deal of environmental influence. Let me give you an interesting study that was done by the uh, the twin study up in Minnesota not too many years ago, they were trying to figure out what the causes of happiness are. And they looked at all the, the things that you would think about. They looked at education, they looked at religious affiliation, at uh, family upbringing, at socioeconomic levels, um, and they looked at genetics. And when they finally analyzed this, they found that all of those things that most of us would put our money on we're getting about a 3 to 4% rating in terms of its causal importance. Genetics got 48%. These are things we don't know about. We, we have no earthly idea of the genetic influences on us other than just reading reports. We don't record it. We, we don't record so many things, Tom, in our life. We're like a little tiny marble sitting on a giant pyramid, and that pyramid are things, think about it, what's going on in your gut, your heart, the enzyme activities, uh, moment by moment, the genetic influences, none of that is part of our subjective experience. This is amazing stuff, Robert, and, and I do want to talk a little bit about the research, but I have a break coming up here in a minute. Can you stand by for a few minutes, and then we'll... Uh, We'll talk some more. I can. All right. My guest is uh, Robert Taylor, MD. is a psychiatrist and uh, educator and author of the book, The Deceptive Brain, Bla uh, Blame, Punishment, and the Illusion of Choice. If you're listening to us on uh, 92.1 LPFM Flint, uh, our voices radio is a... Uh, broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And uh, hopefully um, you will choose to uh, 
stand by and join me and Dr. Taylor Everybody's after this. Everybody's a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed. 
a magical place with magical charms indoors 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 take it away hi this is deb cherry genesee county treasurer and you're listening to the tom sumner radio show and welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with psychiatrist, educator, and author Robert L. Taylor, M.D., his new book, uh, The Deceptive Brain, Blame, Punishment, and the Illusion of Choice. Robert, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. No problem. Um, just before the break, Robert, we brushed up against the uh, the research that went into this book, The Deceptive Brain, and you talked about uh, just the plethora of choices being made all the time in and out of our control within our own bodies. And um, I thought maybe we'd we'd pick it up there. How do you how do you do research for a book like this? We know so little about the brain. We do. Let me tell you, just before we get into some of the hard research that has been done, uh, let me let me make a comment that perhaps will help the listening audience uh, a bit. People that have developed the evidence that free will is an illusion often are very hesitant to even talk about it. And one of the reasons is that they just don't know what to do with the idea of what if what if the world ought everybody woke up tomorrow and everybody understood that the evidence was overwhelming, that the choices we think we make, the free will we think we exert is a complete illusion. Would the world not fall apart? Would it not become chaotic? People would be doing whatever they want to do. That's a false choice. Uh, and it's, it's a mistake in, in, misinterpreting and not seeing the difference between blame and responsibility. If people are not worthy of blame because they don't make free choices, we still as a social living group have to hold everybody responsible. So whereas if free will is, is an illusion, if we don't make choices, which is the heart of our legal system, then we can't hold anybody to blame, but we have to hold everybody responsible. But it creates a whole different approach to criminal justice that is not focused on blame and punishment. It may be focused on containment, but not blame and punishment. Holding people responsible, consequences, yes, but not blame and not punishment. Well, for some people... Blame is holding a, a person responsible or accountable for something they've done. But punishment, does it suggest maybe that if we better understand um, how much of an illusion choice is, that we might better design um, something in place of punishment like treatment you you mentioned containment what what does that mean um i've worked in prisons and uh these are massive concrete hell holes with concertina wire and people every day are regimented and isolated and 
the more punishment, the better is the feeling. These people have knew what they were doing, they're to blame, and punishment goes with it. And that's what we're here for, to control and to punish them. Well, in First many all, ways, whether you're talking about the, the, the Australian colony of in, in days of old to modern prisons, isn't it to a certain degree about getting uh, people who are being held responsible for certain egregious behaviors out of sight so that we don't have to really confront the issue of why would someone do that? Well, the, the problem is that a large percentage of people who go to prison get out at some point. When they're in prison, they're criminalized further. These are lives filled with fear every second of your waking day. Uh, you're regimented, you're disrespected. Basically, if you've got any anger, it's going to come out there. But the people I saw as a psychiatrist, were, the greatest sense of anxiety came from the fact you are not safe at any moment in prison. You can be killed or a, a, a sexually assaulted from any different angle, and a lot of it occurs from the staff as well as other patients. That's what happens when you build a criminal justice system based on blame and the deserving punishment people get. If people are not to blame, but we have to hold them responsible, we have an entirely different approach. We, we, there is a place in uh, Norway called Halden Maximum Security. It was developed about 15 years ago because Norway just got tired of everybody coming back to prison, committing more crimes, and they just decided to start over. They don't have any buildings with Constantino wire. If you drive through this 75-acre blueberry wood, on the, the border of Switzerland with or Sweden, basically you see something that looks like a college campus. Now we're talking about murderers, rapists, pedophiles, the worst of criminals here. There, there are no locked places. These people can get day passes. They can have their family come visit. They're basically training to get jobs. They're getting treated for addiction, for mental disorder. Uh, it is more like a college campus than anything else. Their motto now in Norway is better out than in. And they, they got there not because of the discussion we're actually having about free will. That's one way to get there. They got there because they realized their criminal justice system was not effective, it was incredibly costly, and it was inhumane. And it works extraordinarily well. So there is a sense of of isolating people that have been that are being held responsible for for their actions. That's what I call containment. You can you can contain people and be humane and educational and so on. You're containing them to protect the public. If you don't blame anybody but you hold everybody responsible, your first priority is public safety. You have to make the public safe. But you don't put you, you don't put a lot of nonviolent people behind concrete prison walls if you're just containing the people that need to be contained and some people would need to be contained for the rest of their lives. 
but they won't be on death row. They won't be isolated. They will be given opportunities to be do community service or whatever to make their lives as humane as possible if you're not holding them blameworthy and you're not punishing them. You're containing them to keep the public safe. Now, do those... Um do those people in this uh, Norway example, yeah. uh, do they also have a release date? And, and what are the returning citizens like when they go back to? Well, you, you really have hell on the head here because they don't have strict determinate sentences. Basically, they're watching their progress and... They're not going to hold them there any longer than they need to to feel like that they've given them a good shot for not coming back. They've been very successful at this. Their recidivism rate when they started this was around 50 or 60 percent. Today it's about 22 percent for every two years. Our recidivism rate's awful in this country, 75 percent over every five year period. So these are expensive. Our our prison systems are expensive, they're inefficient, they have high recidivism rates. Basically, the, the main reason we keep them is they become symbols of law and order and are political footballs. And it's been very hard for us to do what Norway does. My argument in the book, however, is based on something entirely different. It is that if free will and choice-making is really an illusion, and all of us do what we have to do, that in every crime, there are two victims. There's the perpetrator and the person who perpetrated the crime who, because of circumstances, did that. It's hard to swallow for a lot of people, but that's what the evidence is telling us, and the evidence is accumulating all the time. And, and where is that evidence being gathered, and how? Let, let me give you a, a few examples of some of the evidence. Yeah, please. Back in, the th back in the 30s and 40s, there was a man by the name of uh, Gray Walter who was an encephalographer. He, he did the recordings of the brain by putting little electrodes on people's heads. And in one of the early studies, he essentially wired these people up, and he told them that as he was recording them, he wanted them to do a single activity. Whenever they spontaneously wanted to do it, he wanted them to reach out and punch a button that would uh, move the slide projector and the slides ahead. Simple enough. Uh, he carried out the uh, study. He didn't tell the people that in addition to recording their brain waves, he was directing that brain circuitry to the slide projector. And so he recorded in this study, the amazement of people consistently who would, quote, spontaneously make a decision and reach out to punch a button and the slide projector would move ahead of them over and over again. The decision to move the slide projector had happened in their brain before they thought that they were making it. There are numerous studies of that kind that essentially show that the brain waves and the activity and the choice has been made in the brain before people make decisions that they think they are controlling and making. 
that's one part of the evidence for what we're talking about. And what um, I'm, who is is doing these studies, and and where are we in the process? The studies are, are ongoing, but uh, they're, they're names that are well-known. These are neuroscience researchers. Um, some, some of them are, uh, you know, MDs and PhDs. Some of them are, are in other areas. But they're, they're doing hardcore brain research um, in, in those kinds of settings. Um, an, another aspect of, of this evidence, um, Michael Gazzaniga, is a famous uh, doctor. He's a PhD psychologist, I think. He happened to be doing research at a time where we were doing, uh, we were taking people that had seizure disorders, severe seizure disorders, and we were splitting the brain by cutting the callosum, the little bridge that connects the two parts of the brain, uh, the right and the left cortex. They were doing that because if you had somebody with a sphere uh, seizure, it would spread across the brain, but if you made a, a transection, you, you limited it to one side and not the whole brain, and it helped a number of people until we got better medications uh, with their seizures. Michael Gazzaniga, during that time, they took a whole number of people and essentially was able to present information to one side of the brain versus the other side of the brain. Now, keep in mind that if you present something to the right side of the brain, it doesn't have a talking center, whereas the left side does. And in, I'll just give you one example. In one of these experiments, Michael Gazzaniga took this uh, well-educated young woman who had had the split brain surgery, and he, he set it up to where she had a pornographic image projected to her right side of her brain. She put her hand over her mouth, blushed, and giggled. And when Michael Gazzaniga asked her what it was that was causing her to do that, since the left side of the brain had not gotten that information, and it was the, the side of the brain that was going to respond to Michael Gazzaniga's question, the answer was, oh, I don't know, I saw some bright light or something. It was really strange. From those studies, and he did hundreds and thousands of these studies, he, he really has finally concluded that there is an area in the left side of the brain that is an interpreter translator. Its job is to essentially take what's going on in this incredibly complex brain and translate it into a coherent, working narrative story that becomes human experience. That's the other part of the research that, has, uh, that is coming in. So that, that kind of tells us we've got some area in the brain that its job is just that, even if it has to make up things. I'm going to be a little more speculative here and talk about maybe what's going on in dreams. We know how chaotic dreams are. It may be that this interpreter in our brain is presented with its challenge, but without much information. It takes whatever it can, and it's struggling to put it together, but it's what makes dreams the way they are, because 
at that point in our 24-hour cycle, our translator area in the brain has both hands tied behind its back and is trying to do it You know, I, I was looking over some of the things that you've done in your career, Robert, working with um, high-security prisons and um, a state prison in California and, and some of the other things that you've done. But I was fascinated to see that you'd also served as a consultant to the U.S. Secret Service. I understand how prisons can benefit from some of the things that you're um, exploring and talking about in your book, but how does the Secret Service benefit from this information? The Secret Service consultation for me was done earlier in my career. I had written a book with a colleague called uh, On Presidential Assassination, and we had studied the 13 people who had tried oh, to okay. assassinate president at that time, but it was an interesting question that came to us from the Secret Service or came to me. The Secret Service is overwhelmed with the number of people they have to keep up with. They, they are re required, any person who's ever by mail or phone or anything threatened the president, if the president travels to an area close to that person, Secret Service has to keep track of that. Well, you can imagine that just gets totally overwhelming. And at the time, they were coming to me and saying, hey, your work is shown and other people as you, uh, women don't try to kill the president. Could we, without exposing the president any more than we necessary, eliminate women in that kind of uh, protection network? It would really reduce our load. And at the time, I was having to go through and tell them, look, you're talking about an N of 13. You only have 13 cases that you base this on. They are all males. But the next one might be a female. And sure enough, a couple of years later, uh, Squeaky Fromm and, uh, and there's another woman uh, who, who tried to shoot Gerald Ford. So that, that, it was hard to get them to understand that, but they, they finally did understand that actually their, their study sample was so small that they could not really deduce what turned out to, to be, it would have been an error on their part. So how big a sample do you have to have before you can make those kinds of determinations? Well, it, it's a statistical you know, you do a statistical study to determine that, and medical studies are all, you know, geared that way. Psychological studies are geared that way. It's it's purely a statistical thing, and it depends on the nature of what you're doing and how uh, how many false positives there are, and a whole bunch of other things. But it, at 13, just common sense would tell you you can't you can't really draw a huge conclusion on that. Uh, you couldn't draw it on two or six or 13 probably, but if you got up to 1500, maybe you could. Um, but they, they didn't, it wasn't really hard to convince them of that after it was laid out, but it, you could understand why they really wanted to exclude all women. It would have cut their, their uh, caseload in, in half. When did this, uh, when did this book come out? The Deceptive Brain has just come out, actually. It came out at the end of October. Okay. And, um, again, the book is called The Deceptive Brain, Blame, Punishment, and the Illusion of Choice by Robert L. Taylor, M.D. And 
Robert, um, what are you working on next? Well, I'm contemplating my navel to decide what I want to do at this point <laughs> in my life. I've seven books, and uh, I, I, there may be another book, but uh, who knows. Um, one thing I wanted to point out to your listeners, though, um, some people will hear this and say, my goodness, what would life be like right. if all the proven to me that I, I really don't have free will, I'm not making any choices. And my answer, surprisingly to them, is it would hardly change. Because you're hardwired to experience life this way. There's no other way you can experience life. It's built in, the self at the center of it making choices. But we override illusions. We have all kinds of illusions. We, we override illusions all the time with our intellect. When the moon uh, disappears in a lunar eclipse, we don't start sacrificing animals or humans at this point. <laughs> we, we know this. When you go to a world-class magician performance, you're sitting on the front row, and you see that magician saw a woman in half. I mean, you see it. It happens. You don't call 911 or call the police. You know it's an illusion. And it'll be the same way eventually with this illusion that we carry around that's pretty central to our life. It won't change the way we experience life. If, if, we're, if, if we're hard... Policy go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. If we're hardwired to behave much the way we do, how does it benefit us to know that it's all an illusion? Because think about it, from a policy point of view, it makes all the difference in the world. Okay. If you, if you truly blame and punish someone for something, you're back to scapegoating. You're back to blaming people for something they don't have control over. Most people would be aghast at us uh, putting to death someone who kills someone because they had a, a big tumor growing in their brain. That you know, most of us would agree that would be immoral. Well, what this research is telling us is that's the, that's the situation we are all in when we commit crimes or break rules. We are victims of the circumstances. And we, even though we don't see it that way, and even though we'll be mad, and, and if someone hurt my granddaughter or something, I would want vengeance and so on. There is some of us, there's a part of us that can override this in terms of policy kinds of things and do what Norway has done instead of what we do in our country uh, of criminalizing people by sending them to these hell holes of punishment, uh, blaming them for things they're not to blame for. Robert, we have to end it there, but uh, where can people find out more about you and your work? Hey, uh, you can go to Amazon, and they have a good write-up there. Uh, the bookstores are getting the book in, so uh, hopefully uh, they'll go and uh, take a look at the book. It's uh, You may not agree with it in the end, but you won't be quite the same when you finish it. <laughs> well, Robert, thank you so much for spending this time with me and the listeners, and keep up the good work. Hey, Tom, thank you for having me. You take care. All right. That was... Uh, psychiatrist and um, 
educator and author Robert L. Taylor, M.D., author of The Deceptive Brain, Blame, Punishment, and the Illusion of Choice. We're going to take a short break. Let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Say Objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in edible arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for edible arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. 
Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. If you're always stealing goodies from a big department store, you need an analyst, a psychoanalyst. If your pocket's full of little things you never owned before, you need an analyst, a psychoanalyst. If somebody says good morning and politely tips his hat, and you frown and say, I wonder what he really meant by that. If you're walking down the sidewalk and you won't step on a crack, you're afraid if you step on a crack, you'll break your mother's back. If you're at the Philharmonic and you start to do the twist, you need an analyst, a psychoanalyst. You need an analyst, you need an analyst. We really must insist that you see an analyst. If you're freezing or you're sweating from imaginary ills, you need an analyst, a psychoanalyst. If it takes an IBM machine to classify your pills, you need an analyst, a psychoanalyst. If you tiptoe into bed and you're as quiet as a mouse, but the bed you tiptoe into is in someone else's house. If you have a brand new raincoat and of it you're very fond, in fact, you'd rather be alone with it than with a blonde. If you wear your wristwatch on your feet and stockings on your wrist, you need an analyst, a psychoanalyst. You need an analyst, you need an analyst. We really must insist that you see an analyst. If you're always tearing paper into teeny weeny bits, you need an analyst. A psychoanalyst If you've got a secret closet full of pomegranate pits You need an analyst A psychoanalyst If they ask you what your name is and you answer Bonaparte If you dig those daffy doodles that are known as modern art If you're walking down the street and then you stop to tie your shoes And you tie them to each other as you hum St. Louis blues Or if you're 46 years old and never have been kissed Go kiss an analyst, a psychoanalyst. Go kiss an analyst, go kiss an analyst. We really must insist that you kiss an analyst. If you're always having arguments when no one else is there, you need an analyst, a psychoanalyst. And whenever you are angry, if you kick your teddy bear, you need an analyst. A psychoanalyst If you dream you've got a purple dragon Next to you in bed And you wake up and your dragon isn't purple It is red If you eat those little prizes And you save the Cracker Jacks If you really think they're ever gonna cut the income tax You need an analyst You need I need He needs We need 
Everybody needs an This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, The Bickerson. What's what's the matter? All right, all right. Blanche, Blanche. I'm putting a ribbon in my hair. Where are you going? I'm not going anywhere. I just thought I'd like to look nice this morning. Why? I knew you'd forget. You don't even know what day this is. I do, too. It's rent day. It is not. Today happens to be our wedding anniversary. Well, I knew it was a sad occasion of some kind. What kind of a remark is that? That's supposed to be funny. No, it isn't supposed to be funny, Blanche. I'm just groggy, that's all. I'm sorry. I knew you'd forget. I didn't forget it. So why didn't you say something? Blanche, I just opened my eyes. You forgot it. I tell you, I didn't forget it. But even if I did, you'd remind me of it. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Is that all? No plans? We've been married eight years. Don't you want to do something? No, it's too late to do anything. It's sad about you. How you suffer. I didn't get such a bargain, you know. Okay, okay. There's better fish in the ocean than the one I caught. There's better bait, too. I'm serious. Okay, I'm sorry. You hack away at me in the morning and I'm so exhausted, I don't know what I'm saying. You wouldn't be so exhausted if you went to bed at a reasonable hour. I had to work overtime. Pour me some coffee. Get paid? I'll get paid. What time did you get home? 12.30. If you got home at 12.30, why were you so long getting into bed? I know for a fact you didn't come to bed until almost 2. I was in the kitchen putting the stuff away. What stuff? What's the matter, Blanche? You told me to bring stuff home for the party tonight. You invited a lot of your crumb friends and you told me to bring stuff, so I brought stuff. Did you bring the potatoes for the potato? salad. I brought potatoes. Did you pair them? I paired them. All of them? All except one. He had a big knob on top and I couldn't find a mate for him. <laughs> I meant... I know what you meant, Blanche. I even boiled them last night. Where are my pants? Who stole my pants? Nobody stole your pants. I just looked in the wastebasket and they're not there. My shoes are missing from the sink. Don't be silly, John. Your pants are on a hanger in the closet and your shoes are in the shoe rack. How'd they get there? I put them there. Well, I wish you'd quit throwing my things around like that. (laughs) Gotta get them or I'll be late. You won't be late. Here are your pants. Thanks. Blanche, these aren't my pants. They're not? Then whose pants are they? That's a good question, only I should be asking. Don't be so snobby. They were baggy, so I pressed them. 
baggy. Took me an hour to find the right crease. Be careful you don't wrinkle them now. What's the difference? I like my pants to look lived in. You're dragging the tops on the floor. Hold your trouser leg with your left hand, then step in with your right foot. Blanche, I've been putting on my own pants for over 40 years, and I don't need you to be the foreman of it. Which one? It doesn't matter. I want to use it for a belt. My suspenders are broken. Why don't you wear your belt? I'm using it to keep the soles from falling off my shoes. John Fitterson, you know you're just... I know it. I know I haven't got a belt. Where's my shirt? Where did you hide my shirt? I didn't hide it anywhere. Well, where is it? I draped it around the canary's cage so he could sleep. Is my shirt the only rag you could find to cover the bird's cage with? Hasn't hurt anything, has it? No, but I don't like the way that bird pokes into my pockets. Every time I take a cigarette out, I'm smoking bird seed. Why do you have to cover the cage anyway? The canary is sensitive to light. Well, get him a pair of sunglasses. Leave my shirt alone. No bird's going to sleep later than I do. Ah, shut up. John, why must you be so mean on our anniversary? Blanche, I'm not mean. I'm worried. Business is bad. My job is hanging by a thread. You never should have quit your other job. You made me quit. You said it wasn't dignified selling bowling balls. You were embarrassed to answer when people asked you what your husband sold. Well, it sounded like it was trying to start a fight. That's no problem for you. I gotta go. Here, and don't forget your samples. I won't forget. This darn vacuum cleaner gets heavier every day. Straighten this hose around my neck, will you, Blanche? There, there. Now, got everything? I think so. No, wait a minute. You got any money? Well, there's 50 cents in the sugar bowl. 50 cents? You can bring me the change when you come home. Now listen, Blanche, something's got to be done about this. I can't go down to work like a pauper every day. A man's got to have a couple dollars in his pocket. Now don't yell at me. I don't mind going with torn clothes and holes in my socks, but I'm not going to suffer through those lunches anymore. What's the matter with your lunches? You ought to know. You pack them for me. I'm just getting sick of carrying my lunch to work in a paper Why can't I go to the restaurant like the other fellas? John, what are you talking about? I haven't fixed your lunch for two years. Oh, Blanche, every morning of my life I find my lunch wrapped in brown paper on the side of the sink. John, that's the garbage. Goodbye, Blanche. Goodbye, dear. Happy anniversary. comes along that's spreading like a plague and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague. Well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the 
start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine. The lesson to July a super bad, transmittable, super bad, transmittable, contagious. Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.